Father, today I ask that you would take this message and that you would tailor make it for us. That you would use the words that I've prepared, the ones that I haven't even, that you would conform them to your will and that you would lead and direct and shape your church gathered here at Cedar Mill Bible for your purposes, Lord. So we want to grow in this subject. We want to have more of your mind and heart. And so we open ourselves to you today. We open our our, our minds, we open our ears, we open our lives uh, to receive instruction from you today. That's our prayer. And we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, like I said, we're in the second week of a series on worship. And this morning, I want to begin by reading some words from a gentleman by the name of Dallas Willard. And Dallas, um, in this passage I'm about to read in this quote, is reflecting on a passage in Colossians, uh, a passage that specifically tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so in this quote I'm about to read to you, uh, Dallas is thinking about just how amazing Jesus is, about what it means that, that, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as we begin our second week in this series on worship, I want to just invite you to let these words just wash over you and, and strike you, maybe the way they struck me this week, and prepare you for the message that's ahead. Here, here's, what, here's what Willard writes reflecting on Jesus. He says, At the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, and eliminate unfruitful trees without a saw or axe. He only needed a word. Surely he must be amused at what Nobel Prizes are awarded for today. One of the greatest testimonies to his power and intelligence is surely that he knew how to enter physical death, how to actually die and then live beyond death. He seized death by the throat, grabbed it and defeated it. He is now supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. That's Jesus Christ the one in whom are held all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I wanted to begin with that this morning because I want to remind us as we step back into this subject of something I said last week, and that's this. We worship Jesus because he is worthy. That's where our worship begins. That's where our worship ends. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And when we realize his worthiness, his worth, when we begin to embrace and magnify his ultimate value, that's when his worth starts to shape our lives. That's the power of worship. And friends, again, that is why the subject that we are tackling today is so absolutely critical. Because you can trace this all throughout the Bible. You can see it from the Old Testament on right into the New. When the people of God start to get fuzzy about what worship is all about and where the focus of worship belongs, it always, every single time, leads to dissension and conflict, and a tragic derailment of what it means to truly be God's people in this world. 
We cannot get it right unless we get worship right. And so this morning, I want to talk to us. The community of Christ followers gathered together called Cedar Mill Bible Church. That's you, that's me. And I want to offer us, friends, this morning some challenges. Because one thing that I believe about worship is this. I believe great worship, right worship, God-honoring worship will not just happen. It's not like the default setting for you and me to be people who get worship right. We are fallen, sinful, selfish, broken people and so we will get it wrong unless, unless we receive teaching and we gain understanding and we make a commitment and we are intentional to worship the way God longs for us to. And so this morning I would like to to help us with that and I'm going to issue five challenges. I'm going to offer us Five things I believe we need to hear and pay attention to as we as a church move forward in this area of worship together. And just to kind of help the process be more memorable potentially, I've tried to use five P words in my statements just to honor the P classrooms that will soon be going away. Um, But five P words to sort of like say, here's what we need to remember, Cedar Mill, as a worshiping people together for this season of our lives. Here's the first one. Here's the first challenge, the first statement I think we need to pay attention to. Singing penetrates the heart. It's a statement and that's a challenge. It's a challenge because sometimes... I think we approach singing as this optional thing, but I do not believe that it is. Some of you know this, but 85 times in the Bible we are commanded, we are instructed to sing to the Lord. Not if we want to, not if we feel like it, not when it's convenient. God says, sing praises to me. Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. We haven't had one of those for a while, but we should get one. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 147. How good is it to sing praises to our God? How pleasant and fitting to praise him. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day it just never gets old we never get tired of it we never finish this calling and then my favorite one psalm 47 sing praises to god sing praises sing praises to our king sing praises is anyone unclear about what this verse is asking us to do i hope not here's the here's the truth though some of you friends do not like to sing some of you come and you gather with us and you stand here or mouth the words or just kind of mumble along and i have to tell you this if i'm real honest i believe you are missing out on something significantly important to your spiritual life and growth because songs Music is this thing, this gift that God has created for us to richly express the deepest desires of our souls. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed how so often we mark moments and seasons, 
eras even, eras of our lives with the music that we listen to. Do you ever just listen to a song and it just takes you back to a moment? When my wife Amy and I were, were freshmen um, in college, we were apart. We were in two different schools. An hour and a half away, we thought we were going to die. We were what you might say, uh, a little co- we were maybe a little codependent. Um, but we were an hour and a half away, longing and pining and missing one another for this year. And we were young and we were in love. But one thing my wife did was she made for me a mixed tape. And I know that for all you middle and high school students out there, this makes me sound extremely old. But just to let you know, a mixed tape is an old device that used to capture and record music. These little plastic things with wheels and such. At any rate, she made for me this mixed tape, a song list of sorts. And I would sit and I would listen to this mixed tape when my roommates weren't around and they couldn't make fun of me. And I would pine for and long for and miss my girlfriend an hour and a half away. Oh, the pain. Now, we kind of laugh at that, but here's the truth. To this day, Over 20 years later, if I hear any of the songs that were on that tape, it takes me back to that moment. It takes me back to those feelings just like they were yesterday. That's the power of music. Friends, music, songs are so special because they have the power to push truths, to push things, to push ideas deep into our hearts and souls. Music is like a a heart language from God of sorts. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 3. This is Paul. He's instructing the early church, the young church. He says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then he talks about how that would happen, how the word of Christ will dwell in you, how you might be taught and admonished, and how you might grow in all wisdom. Here's how it happens. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One scholar I read this week calls church singing take-home theology. He says, when we sing, we actually learn about God and who he is in a way that we will remember it and we can take it home to live it out in the rest of our lives. One of the greatest church fathers of all time, uh, St. Augustine, says this. Listen to this. This is beautiful. When you sing, you pray twice. Once with words and once with the music. You see, even in the melody, Augustine is telling us, even the musical notes are expressing something from your heart to God, not just the words. Even the melody and harmony and such. And for this reason, friends, because music is so profound and so powerful and such a gift from the Lord, I believe that we must think about how much intentionality and focus and energy and effort we are giving to our singing when we come together. John Wesley, the the great hymn writer and another father of our faith, says this. He says, Beware of singing half-hearted or without enthusiasm. Just watch out for that. 
Just take that real seriously. Don't let that start to happen amongst you. Beware of singing half-hearted or without enthusiasm. Because if, if you are really singing to God, if when we gather, the, the words that we sing and the notes that we try to carry are really to the maker of heaven and earth, friends, then those words, those songs, they deserve something from you if they're really for Him. They deserve maybe even something out of your comfort zone. Maybe they deserve something beyond what you're naturally comfortable with. Maybe they deserve some expression, some passion, some emotion. You know, I I grew up in a denomination that wasn't really well known for being expressive or extremely demonstrative in worship. I grew up Lutheran, and in fact, um, if Lutherans had sung the song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, I'm quite certain they would have sung it, the entire thing, sitting down. That is the level of expression I grew up with in the church. And um, it's kind of funny, but, but honestly, when I stopped and I thought about that, and I thought about the worship culture of some of the congregations I was a part of as a child, what I believe about those churches is this. Sometimes the highest value in our church when we sang when I was a kid was don't draw attention to yourself. Most important, when we come together in worship of the Almighty God of heaven and earth that has saved us and redeemed us and restored us, most important in that moment, don't draw attention to yourself. My dad, I remember when uh, I was a kid, there was this song that we would sing, and my dad he loved, he was, he was this big old guy and he was fairly expressive. He's kind of mellowed with age, but when I was younger, he was really out there. And um, there was this song he loved and I think it came out when I was in middle school or maybe early high school and it was this song called Rock of Ages. And every time we would sing it, my dad would just go for it. It was like, rock of age. It had like a little fast like beat like this. Jesus is the rock. And that was the part my dad really loved, that Jesus is the rock part. And he would say it like, Jesus wasn't just a rock, he was like a boulder. And, you know, he would just shout it out and belt it out. And my mom would be like elbowing him, honey, because people like 13 rows ahead of us were doing that like half side kind of glance turn to see who was this excited about the new song, you know. And, and it, it was kind of this embarrassing thing for myself and my, uh, my little brother. But you know what, friends? When I think back on it, I believe the way my dad sang that song is a way that made God smile. I think my dad sang that song like he believed it, like he wanted to believe it, like he needed to believe it. I believe my dad sang that song like Jesus being the foundation of his life was no half-hearted matter. Friends, what is the highest value in our church when we sing? If someone were to watch us worship, if they were just to kind of stand up here and kind of unseen, maybe behind the black curtain, and just watch us together, Cedar Mill Bible Church, sing praises to God, what would they observe about us? What would they observe about you? about your faith, about who we believed our God to be. What they say to themselves, man, that is a group of people who are passionate about the God they serve. What they say, that is a group of people who are deeply connected to their Lord and Savior. What they say, that is a group of people who has so much trust in their Heavenly Father and yearns to trust Him more. What they say, that is a group of people 
who has a high need for the love and grace and mercy they are finding in their Savior? Or would they say, that's a group of people that has an obligation to sing a few songs at church on Sunday? Or that's a group of people that has been a little bit inconvenienced to take time out of their week to sing some songs in church. What would they say? And and more important than what would they say, friends, uh, is certainly what would God say? What does he see? What does he see in us when we sing? What does he receive from us when we come here to worship him? Friends, this is important because singing penetrates the heart. What we express, what we show, what we offer to God will seep back into our hearts, our very lives. And if we just go through the motions here, what will we do out there? Singing penetrates the heart. That's challenge number one. And here's challenge number two. Let worship pervade your life. Let worship pervade your life. Here's what I'm saying Make sure that there is a real strong connection between the life you are living during the week and the songs of worship we are offering at church when we gather here together. And this connection should and does work both ways. First of all, you, whether you think you do or not, bring your life of worship into our gathering of worship. The life of worship you live, we talked about this last week, you drag it in here with you. Um, Allie Dahlgren, our new creative arts director, you just met her, she offered this quote to me um, last week, um, and I thought it was brilliant. And I don't remember who said it or what book it's from, but if you like it, talk to her. We do not go to church to worship, but as continuing worshipers, we gather ourselves together to continue our worship, but now in the company of brothers and sisters. You see, we are supposed to bring our lives of worship into this place and then we're supposed to take our songs of worship back out into our lives. See, our lives impact the worship and then the worship is supposed to impact our lives as well. It's this continual cycle that gets fueled by this moment when we worship together. This is so important to God. There being a connection between this moment and those moments is something that God places an extremely high value on. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 29. He's talking about a group of people who have lost their way in this. A group of people who have no longer connected their lives to their songs. These people, the Lord says through Isaiah, come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts the entirety of their lives are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. This is a group of people that's just going through the motions. And God never wants us to just go through the motions, to just gather together and endure or sing some songs. No, he wants us to take real seriously what we sing here and connect it back into our lives. Tony Campolo uh, tells this story. It's a story of a guy who comes to the worship service every week. And every week he comes in and he makes this big production. And he stands up and he proclaims and he declares real loud, Fill me, Jesus! Fill me! I need you to fill me, Jesus! Fill me! And every week he does this. And then every week he goes back out into his life and just lives like dirt. 
and he deceives people and he's greedy and he's selfish and he's mean-spirited, but he shows up again on Sunday to declare real loud in front of everybody, fill me, Jesus, fill me. And then finally, one Sunday, a woman in the church just gets sick of it and she waits for him to stand up and say, fill me, Jesus, fill me. And then in the back, she stands up and shouts, don't fill him, Jesus, he leaks. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not. But I'd like to think that it is. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that just be an awesome moment in church? We talk about that for weeks. But the question is this, friends. Here's the truth. On some level, all of us leak. But the question is, does our time of worship connect to the lives we are living with Jesus the rest of the week on some level? Or are they these completely compartmentalized moments? Because I'm not sure if you've realized it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before or noticed this before, but we sing some pretty dangerous songs around here. If we're supposed to honestly connect the things we say and sing in this room with the lives we live, then we better get serious because there's some radical, crazy, dangerous stuff in there. We sing things like, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. In other words, God, I'll go wherever you lead, even if it's real scary. In fact, God, I'm asking you to take me to places that are scary and terrifying and beyond my control just so that I can learn to trust you more. That's what we're asking him in that song. Just today we sang, Let my deeds outrun my words. Let my life outweigh my song. Those are some of the best lyrics we've sung in a long time. God, I don't want to just sing about this stuff. I want to live this stuff. We sing, Lord, take this life and let it be your throne. Those words came out of your mouth if you were singing today. In other words, God, you call the shots in my life. I surrender all. Another thing we said, God, we didn't say, God, you know, I surrender most of my stuff kind of some of my life, a little portion of what I have to you. No, we said, Lord, I surrender all, every area, every aspect, every moment, when I'm with my friends, when I'm at home by myself, when I'm at the office, when I'm walking the hallway at school, all those moments, Lord, are yours to be in control with. The question is, do we mean that? I mean, if God hears us singing these things, do you think he should take us seriously? You know, maybe the Lord is just up there in the Trinity and they're just kind of like, and Jesus is going, no, Holy Spirit, don't take him too seriously. They're just getting all worked up in church. They don't really mean it. It's no big deal. And the Father's like, "Uh, let's just ignore him for a while. No, I think God takes this extremely seriously. I think he wants more than ever for it to actually be true, for it to be sincere, for it to really be what we long for and want in our hearts and lives. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Do you really want to learn that? Because to love like that, to love others the way God has loved you, that's going to take some work. That's going to take some sacrifice. That may even involve some suffering or some discomfort. Do you mean that when you say it? You know, sometimes we'll just sing the word around here, hallelujah. 
hallelujah, hallelujah. We'll just repeat it and we'll sing it. It'll get woven into a song or we'll say it over and over and over again as a part of a, of a chorus. You know what that word means? That word means the highest praise to God. That above everything else in my life, everything else in my world, God, you are worth more than it all. You are valued more than it all. I give it all to you because you are the highest, highest praise to you. There's a lot of things in this world I'll praise, but nothing is greater than you, Lord. Hallelujah. It's one of the greatest, most powerful words you can ever declare. Highest praise to Yahweh. Let worship pervade your life. Here's challenge number three. If the first two challenges are even close to true, then this one makes sense. Make our gatherings a priority. Friends, if what I am saying about worship is true, then our time together must become a higher priority for us. So many people, especially in churches like ours, non-denominational evangelical Bible churches, will just have this this attitude about corporate worship that goes something like this. Well, you know, all that music stuff is fine, but it's really just the warm-up for the sermon. I mean, the sermon, that's the main thing. That's the main event. That's what really matters. So, you know, if I get here late or spend the first few songs hanging out in the lobby and then kind of mosey in it like a quarter after, it's not really a big deal because the the singing, that's just the preliminaries. Have you seen that attitude around here? You ever been in here at 11 o'clock sharp and taken a look around? Friends, we have much work to do here. I will view it again. This is the time. This is the moment when we gather together the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ, to declare as a community the majesty and glory and splendor of our Lord and King. Do you think that sounds important? Worship is the main event. It's not just a warm-up routine for the message. And believe me, I'm fully invested in the message. Now, I'll say this. I do know that it takes heroic efforts for some of you just to make it here at all. You have to get up. You have to eat breakfast. You have to get dressed and ready. Some of you have health issues to overcome, and I am not overlooking those or making light of those in any way. Some of you have a number of of health obstacles to overcome, namely the number of kids that you have, and you have to get those ready. And then you have to drive here, and you have to park, and you have to walk in, and you have to get your kids to the classrooms. Then you have to navigate the lobby, and then you have to find a seat. And I know that in any one of those moments, things can go sideways for a variety of reasons, and now you're rushed and flustered and late and maybe even embarrassed to come in and I'll just say this there's grace here we will not become this judgmental legalistic church that's watching to see who made it here on time and who didn't and now if you didn't shame on you you don't love God and he's not a priority in your life we're not going to become that church no way however can I as kindly And humbly as I possibly can, offer a word of pastoral encouragement to you this morning. And this is really for you, not for me. This is really for you and your soul and your spiritual growth. And mine too, because I'll take the same advice. Try to get here 30 minutes before the service starts. I'm serious. 
try to arrive on this campus 30 minutes before our singing time together begins. Give yourself some margin. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if that was your goal. Imagine if that's what you were shooting for. Because there's something that's bound to go wrong, and so you'll never be that early. But what if you are? What if the stars align and the kids are ready and they eat breakfast and no one spills their milk and Timmy has his shoes on and you hit every single green light on the drive here and all of a sudden you show up and you're not only 30 minutes ahead of the service, you're here 35 minutes. Oh no, what a tragic moment. What would you do? Well, you'd have some peace and some quiet. And time to talk to a friend or read the bulletin or get some coffee or even better yet, just sit and pray and prepare your heart to sing to your God once the service begins. You know what the truth is? The truth is this. We tend to give time and space and preparation for the things that are most important to us in this world. When it really matters to us, we will make it a priority. If it's really important to us, we will carve out the time. Is worship important to us? I hope it it is, friends. I believe we want it to be. And so I'm trying to nudge you and I hope a direction that you already want to go because here's our next challenge. Worship is not a product. You see, one of the biggest problems... American uh, worship and American culture is that we go to worship to get something for us instead of going to worship to give something to God. You see, we approach it from the wrong place right from the very beginning and it throws us completely off. Again, this goes back to what we talked about last week. Worship is our response to who God is and what he's done. This means that when we say things like, I didn't get much out of the worship this morning. Chances are, we've completely missed the point. We've been fooled into approaching worship as a consumer instead of as a contributor. You see, a contributor says, I have something to declare today, something to offer, something to give God as a part of this community. A response to His goodness and greatness and love. A consumer says, I hope I like the music today. I hope it works for me. I hope it's not this or that, or I hope so-and-so is leading or preaching or singing. You know, I was thinking this week about the very first time we see corporate worship in the Bible. The very first time we actually, in the scriptures, see God's people gathered together and sing praises to him. Does anyone know when that happens? very first time in the scriptures it happens? Exodus chapter, nice job, Judy. It's our CR leader right there. Total guess, but she nailed it. Exodus chapter 15 is when it happens. Moses and Miriam lead the Israelite nation in singing praises to the Lord. You know why? You know what happens in Exodus 14? They avoid certain death and annihilation. Y'all know the story. They've kind of been released from captivity um, in Egypt and they've wandered in the wilderness for a while and now they they find themselves kind of pinned up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army, they've changed their minds. So on this side, there's the Red Sea and on this side, Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them and they know that they can't cross the sea and they know they can't take on Pharaoh's army and they think they're done for and so the people start to do what? Whine and complain. We never should have left Egypt. Why did you do this to us, Moses? And what does Moses do? He stretches out his staff 
over the waters and the Lord parts the sea and they cross over in between the waters on dry ground and then Pharaoh's army gives pursuit and the waters come crashing in. And, and, and God in that moment prevents one of the most heinous acts of mass genocide in the history of the world. And God's people, delivered from certain death and destruction, break forth into song and dancing. And Miriam even grabs her tambourine and begins to play. And they just worship. Now, can you imagine in this moment, some of the Israelites saying things like, you know, I think we're going to leave this community and find a new place to sing because we're not really liking the songs that you guys are picking here today. Um, or you know that tambourine, it just drives me nuts. I, I really like the lyre and the flute, but the tambourine just grates on me. Can't we sing more lyre and flute songs? Or, or how come Miriam and Moses have to lead all the time? I mean, Miriam, Miriam always does that dancing thing, and I don't find it very reverent. I really like it when Aaron leads. Can't we have Aaron lead worship more often? Now, if these things were said and recorded in the Bible, we would read them and we would go, what? That's crazy. That's strange. That's weird. It's so inappropriate. Why? Because in light of what has just happened... These kind of things don't really matter, do they? In light of the fact that God is who He is, that He is that powerful and that strong, and that He has delivered them from slavery and death and persecution and annihilation, to complain about the tambourine or the style of music or anything else just seems crazy because the size of God dwarfs all those other things, doesn't it? Friends, if our focus really is God who he is and all he's done, some of the things that tend to divide and cause issues in churches, they'll just seem silly and they'll fall away and they won't really matter. And I'm not trying to say that people don't have different preferences or musical or stylistic kind of hopes or dreams. Every single person in this room has musical preferences. Things in worship that really connect with us and, and resonate with our soul and kind of almost pull us into worship. And then we all have things that don't. That's just a reality. That is just truth. But church, when you bump up against those feelings, I'm asking you this. Manage those thoughts. Manage those feelings real carefully. Because we are not consumers here. We are certainly going to do our best to create worship that resonates with our hearts and our minds and our souls and that draws people in from our world who desperately need to know Jesus. We are certainly going to do our best there. But we are not consumers here. This is not a movie or a play or a game or a show. This is not a place where we come to get the worship product that we want so that we can leave satisfied customers Great job, church staff. That's just what I wanted and needed today. You see how we've lost the focus on Jesus? This is the place. I see. Here's the deal. The world does that. The world teaches us in every other venue that's to be our perspective. That's to be our approach. Come in, look for what I want, evaluate if I get it, and if I get it, I like it, and if I don't, I'm not happy. 
The world teaches us to do that in every other place. We are not every other place. This is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. We're different. This is a place where we come to give worship to the God who has saved and redeemed and rescued us from the sin and death we would still be prisoners to without Him. And that's the thing that unites us. In spite of our differences, lots of differences in this world, but in spite of all those differences, we're united in this thing that is greater than them all. And that's the last challenge for us to really and truly embrace this truth. There's power in together. There's power in together. People love to talk about this, but very few people really believe it. You see, friends, we live in a world that would wave that flag, that would share that mantra, but that very same world just separates people time and time again in any and every way. We live in a world that separates people by age and gender and ethnicity and preference and how much money we make and even in little groups of attractive to less attractive based on the world's standards. But the church... The church is the place where with all of our differences we come together to acknowledge this one simple truth that is greater than them all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there anything more powerful than that? Is there anything more important than that? Is there anything more uniting than that? That while we were sinners, enemies of God, the God of the universe gave His very Son, His life, that we might have life. There's this passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul is talking to the church again and he's talking about the power of together and the power of being together and and rubbing off on one another and declaring truth to one another through song. Listen to this, listen to this. How much togetherness there is in worship. It's not just an isolated thing. You don't just come here to kind of get in in a zone with just you and God. You come to be with God's people. Here's what he writes. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, in just a minute, we are going to sing some beloved words together that have been sung by Christ followers for for generations. Here's how they go. I just want to read them to you. Because this is, this is the stuff that brings us together. This is the stuff that's more important than our individual preferences and ideals. This is what's penned. This is what we'll sing. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross... My burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And my response to that is this. Then sings my soul. When we've grasped that truth, when we've realized that truth, when we've encountered that truth, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. Not to me or to you or to anyone, but to to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Friends, it's no wonder we sing hallelujah. 
It's no wonder the highest praise is for our Lord above any and everything else. It's no wonder that even though this world would seek to divide us, nothing ever can because we are united in this truth. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your greatness and your majesty and your glory and your splendor. May it dwarf and minimize and even crush all the things that would seek to divide us in this world. May when people come to this place, they see unity in the midst of diversity in a way that shocks them and strikes them and speaks to them and preaches to their souls. God, be alive in our midst. Be alive in our praise. May all that we say and sing in this place be for you and for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.